Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 82 for February the 3rd, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest uh, this week is Mr. Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. Good to have you again. Uh, we've got a, a pretty jam-packed Chat Chat for the week. A big deal here at Sophos. We spent a lot of time and effort and put energy putting into uh, in our Sophos Security Threat Report 2012. And for those of you that want to download it, maybe if you haven't seen it, uh, selfless.com slash threat report 2012. One of the highlights that we talked about is how many people are still being victimized by these exploit kits. Uh, you know, the, why are so many people being victimized by something that's kind of prepackaged uh, exploits? The primary problem, I believe, is a kit that's for sale called Black Hole. That's the, the most successful, both commercially in the underground, as far as I can see, and in terms of the number of people that get infected as a result. The problem is that there are two sides here. One is that the exploit kit actually packages up a number of exploits which it can deliver selectively to a visiting computer. The cybercrook doesn't have to worry about, oh, should I try a Java exploit or a Java script or a PDF or a TIFF or a font or whatever. They're all there and automatically the exploit kit inside a web page will try those on your computer and if you're not patched, you'll become victimized. The other problem is that in order to deliver this stuff, the black hole exploit kit is able to adapt the behavior of existing legitimate web servers. So we're not talking about a small number of servers that are run by the crooks, which can easily be identified and blocklisted or thrown off the internet. We're talking about legitimate servers that have actually been broken into, hacked, and have had this kit, which is heavily obfuscated, uploaded in order to do the dirty work of the cyber crooks out there in what would otherwise be legitimate internet land. So there are two parts to this. There are the unpatched PCs that are, is allowing the actual exploits to work, and there are the incorrectly guarded web servers, legitimate web servers out there, that are just acting as islands of evil in what's supposed to be a sea of good. So really two problems, the, the problems of web server operators not being secure enough, and the problem of individual users of PCs and, dare I say it, Macs, for not being proactive enough in keeping their software up to date. So in essence, I mean, by just visiting a, a site that's made a security mistake, maybe they didn't patch their WordPress or they were running a, a vulnerable version of an FTP daemon on their Unix box or something that hosts their service, you visit one of these sites and... If any of the things that are in this exploit kit are not patched, then you get hit. I mean, that, that's the thing that I think folks may not realize is that it's not just uh, that you're running an out-of-date Adobe Reader or an out-of-date Java patch or an out-of-date Internet Explorer. The thing is they string them together in these kits where there's a whole bunch of them and that the one thing you forgot to get to, WinZip, RealPlayer, whatever it is, if you've missed one of them, then you're suddenly at risk of getting hit with it, even though you thought you did your best by doing, you know, the five you remembered. Well, another topic that came up in the threat report was there's been, I would even argue, a bit of hype around uh, the mobile malware. Was 2011 really the breakout year of mobile malware? I mean, we, we certainly saw thousands of Android samples. Oh, Chester, that's a tricky question. I think you're trying to trap me into uh, damned if I do, damned if I don't. Remember, 2005 was going to be the breakout year for mobile malware, and 2006 was. You know what I mean, that every year we go, well, crikey, haven't the guys worked out how to make money out of this yet? So I don't want to be alarmist and say 2012 things are going to get worse. Let's hope that they don't. 
The problem is that in the ecosystems of the big two mobile phone platforms, Android and iOS from Google and Apple, there does seem to be an awful lot of faith placed by users in the fact that the devices and the marketplaces will kind of look out for you. So you don't really need to worry yourself. So if we don't want 2011 to be the breakout year for mobile malware, we can all be just a little bit more cautious, and that will go an awful long way. One of the last topic I wanted to bring up uh, about the threat report was you talked a bit about cloud security, and, and you and I have talked about this extensively in the past. The cloud is, you know, just ultimately for most people, another storage medium, no different than a hard disk or a USB stick or anything else. But there, there is kind of an additional challenge is it, it's not a thing, right? So how, how do we deal with the cloud? I mean, the cloud is sort of, I don't know whether that data is on an SSD. Is it on a hard drive? Is it backed up? Is it not backed up? Was it encrypted? Is it being treated properly? Is it in the US? Is it in Canada? Is it in Hong Kong? Is it in New Zealand? Is it in Singapore? Is it wherever? Has one of the governments in one of those jurisdictions used some legal mechanism to look at it in a way that means you can't be told, like the Patriot Act allows in the US? There are lots of difficult issues with the cloud. Again, as we talked about with Black Hole Kit, there are, I see this as a problem with two sides. There's the sort of cloud service where you connect with a web browser and absolutely everything, the software, the processing, the choice of how the data is, is represented, stored, manipulated, and so forth, is all done by the cloud provider. And that really is almost a religious act of faith to trust a provider of that sort. The other sort of cloud operation is where people go, well, it's very convenient that the stuff that I would otherwise have backed up on a USB drive at home I'll just copy and I'll let someone else worry about it somewhere. By encrypting the information before you entrust it to the cloud, you can pretty much make sure that it doesn't matter how many disks it ends up on, whether it ever properly gets deleted, whether anybody else is able to log in and look at it, because unless they know the password, it's just so much shredded cabbage. That's my philosophy. I actually do cloud backups for some of my personal data, but I encrypt all that data beforehand, and then I synchronize it to the cloud. And of course, I also keep a local backup that's encrypted so that, you know, in the event that the cloud fails or goes away, or I end up deciding that my cloud backup mechanism is mega upload, I still have my data even if the cloud goes away. Chester, I read in the, I read in the paper this morning that Kim.com, apparently is, he's now applying for bail again, and one of his reasons is that he's getting pestered by female fans in jail, apparently. Wow, that, that's uh, pretty astounding. I, I, to, another topic that you just wrote about on Naked Security was this uh, new proposal for securing email known as DMARC. The end of spam forever. Phishing will be a thing of the past. We're all saved, just like we were in 2004 when Bill Gates said, I give spam two years. Well, uh, you know, some of the press seems to be treating it that way. We have headlines like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and fish fighting Smackdown. Yeah, that was the register, Chester. That was, you know, that's a great headline. It, it, I mean, they, 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 they give good title. They aren't quite so conciliatory in the article. The problem here is not technological. The problem is that we actually need to revise our organizational attitudes to our own sending of email. There's a little bit in all of this about physician heal thyself. And I say that because one of the backbones of this new DMARC thing 
it's not a whole new protocol that subsumes everything else. It actually relies on helping you use existing protocols like SPF or Sender Policy Framework better. So this policy is backed by some rather large um, companies that either are victims of phishing or large email providers. Are these companies implementing these uh, technologies like SPF the way it would be necessary for this to succeed? For the article I wrote for Naked Security, which was really a way of me consolidating my own thoughts and trying to understand the background to all of this, I took the 15 organizations whose logos are prominently featured on the dmark.org main page. You know, these are the backers. That includes the Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Bank of America, and so forth. Yeah, heavy hitters. Step one in the dmark.org how to do it. Step one in their implementation plan says, first, get SPF and DKIM right. You have to do the basics first. That's what they say. So I thought, let's look at SPF records of those 15 companies. Praise the Lord for AmericanGreetings.com, Facebook.com, Fidelity.com, for example. They had, at the end of their SPF records, minus all. What that means is they have basically nailed their colors to the mast and said, we are giving you an exhaustive list of all the servers we will ever use to send you email. And if anyone uses any other server, it's not us. Good for them. But seven out of the 15 actually use the twiddle or tilde all SPF record, which means if it's not on our list, then actually, well, we, we don't know. So kind of it's up to you which I call the pretend-to-care SPF record. One of them, and I shall name it, it's AOL.com, they use question mark all in their SPF record, which is what I call the don't-care result. It means you're actually not making any statement about whether a mail server belongs to you or not. Uh, three out of the 15 had not published SPF or any SPF record, which means that they're not actually even prepared to stand up and say, we know where our own company's official email will come from. SPF can't fix the spam problem, of course, but it just seems this crashing irony when financial institutions that are really plagued by phishing aren't prepared to make a public statement about which servers are actually authorized to send mail on behalf of that domain. It just seems a little bit like we're going, you know what, I really hate receiving spam, but by golly, it's useful to be able to send it once in a while. To me, it's a, a bit shocking that uh, organizations that have agreed to participate in an initiative to launch something that's dependent upon something like SPF, that even a, a fifth of them, 20%, are not participating in even publishing SPF records themselves that would even enable it to work. Yes, that is an, an irony. So uh, to, to wrap up uh, the last topic for this week's uh, chat chat, I want to talk about a little bit of a blunder, I guess, mostly in the UK. Uh, O2, a mobile service provider, kind of the equivalent of uh, T-Mobile and AT&T in the United States, or maybe uh, uh, Telstra in, in Australia, providing mobile services, was accidentally sending people's cell phone numbers as part of an HTTP header to any website they visited. Uh, would, would you consider, I mean, I, I consider my cell phone PII. I mean, what, what's the story? I should have known about this before because you've written about it at, a, I believe, a conference that you went to a couple of years ago about mobile phone networks doing this, using mobile phone number as a way of sort of pre-identifying a user. The idea that you add that mobile phone number into web requests, in other words, you let it into your network, then stick this header in so you can track it inside around your network, 
and then when you're going to release it from whatever proxy or gateway or super duper filter you have at the other edge of your network, you then rely on removing that header before you show it to the world. That just seems like a convenient but crazy way to operate. You're adding PII into a web request while it's inside your own network and just bravely trusting that at any exit point from your network, you'll remember to clean up after yourself. And in this case, O2 didn't. And there was an outcry about it once people realized exactly the consequences of this, that any website could log your mobile phone number. What was interesting to me is our colleague Graham ran a poll on Naked Security to see what people thought. And usually our polls, you know, for, re for, for issues where we feel really strongly and we think any other techie should feel strongly about this, sometimes we get 85% of people agree with us or 92% of people who go, yes, we were right to oppose this. Well, on this poll, only 16 people out of 1,786 actually said they thought this was acceptable. It was a 99.1%. This is crazy. Mobile phone numbers should be private, and the idea that you're just sharing it with everybody is absurd. So definitely egg on O2's face, and if any other mobile provider is still doing this, using mobile phone number as an HTTP header tag while packets are inside their network, your users aren't going to be very happy if they find out. Yeah, I mean, this is just a continuation of uh, questionable security practices in the mobile provider realm. I mean, after the scandal around news of the world and, you know, phone hacking and all this by relying on caller ID to allow people access to their voicemail, the idea of relying upon some well-known secret that anybody can fake is silly. Alpine. <laughs> so that wraps, that concludes... Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 82. Uh, thank you for joining us, Paul. Well, thanks for having me, Chester. I, I may have got a little bit heated there. Uh, not that I feel strongly about any of the issues we've discussed this week. But uh, can I say it this time? Until next time, stay secure. You can. And as always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And for the other podcast episodes we produced, you can get them via RSS on iTunes or at podcasts.sophos.com. Cheers.